Today in the garage, we asked the guests of season two if they had any questions for me. Of course, being lawyers, many of them couldn't resist putting me on the spot. Whether you're driving your Alfa Romeo Giulia, strumming your acoustic, or prepping your client, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Well, I want to ask you about the, the, the lawyer that you most enjoyed seeing um, uh, in your career. I have to say Edward Sapiano. Yeah. Um, because he was just a, a true trial lawyer. You know, when you got to know Edward, first of all, he was he was as generous as they come. And people who got to know him uh, well learned that very quickly. He was very, very giving as a senior lawyer and not giving uh, in the sense of, you know, being there to answer your questions, giving in the sense of referring you clients, keeping you on rotation. And he was quite honest about it. And he said, you know, just just drop me an email sometimes. Just ask you say, you know, Edward, I'm, I'm around if you've got anything because I'll remember and I'll give you something. And, and he got, actually got my got me started early when I went on my own. But in court, he just he was so charismatic. I found he was he could be difficult with the police officer. He could be really challenging. He was a true fighter of rights. Like it it was what he believed. It was fighting for the person um, that he was defending was what he actually believed and it was what he definitely uh, portrayed in court. He wasn't just being a lawyer. He was he was fighting for somebody to, you know, get off the charges that they were facing. And oftentimes he fought very difficult cases. And he was famous, obviously, for, you know, holding the police accountable, especially the drug squad. Yeah, he was he was one of the counsel who led that charge for those drug squad cops. Right. And he he was he was very, very persistent when he found an issue that he thought was um, important. He wouldn't let go of it. And in doing that, he was inspiring, especially because I got the benefit of meeting him while I was still an articling student and working with him on a case that young and into my early years as a lawyer. I knew I could never advocate in the way he advocated because he was very boisterous and he had a presence about him and it wasn't really in my persona to mm-hmm. be that way. But it was fun to watch him do it because it was who he was and how he did things. And I really think that um, the defense bar is probably missing him and is looking forward to having future counsel who can emulate, at the very least, that type of advocacy. You know, for me with Ed- with with Edward... We all remember the passion. We all remember the charisma. But it's one of those instances where I feel like he had such other strengths that get overshadowed. Like he was a very effective tactician in court. Like there was a, there were a lot of there were speeches, there was fire, there was passion, but it wasn't unbridled. Like I, I never, if I ever saw him do anything, it was it wasn't like man, you know, Sapiano lost it today. He lost the thread. There were, he, there were, the thread was never lost with him, right? They were, they, were, they were his personality, yes, but he really did a, a good job marshalling that towards where he wanted to be, I thought. Yeah, I, 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 you're right. That's exactly, that's a perfect way to explain it. He, he was able to channel his energy into his abilities to advocate effectively and i think that's what made him an effective lawyer and i miss him i miss him a lot i miss him as a friend i was 
was very, very saddened uh, when I found out about his passing. Megan? I want to ask you about COVID parenting while practicing. What, what's the story you have of your kids going on the record while you're trying to do Zoom code? Well, like my, my baby's only eight months today. So I didn't, you know, I had the benefit of my wife on maternity leave. But, um, you know, once in a while, she wouldn't notice that I was actually uh, on a call. I was on, I was on screen. And she brought the baby and she handed me the baby. <laughs> thinking that I wasn't on screen. <laughs> and I know that the judge was laughing. I'm not going to say who it was, because I was kind of holding the baby a little lower than the camera, but he could see my, you know, my body movement going up and down, and you could hear the baby kind of, you know, making those baby sounds. But what are you going to do? This is COVID parenting. It's COVID court. You know, dogs are barking, babies are crying, and, you know, that's life. So yeah. it was fun. Uh, in the moment, but I asked my wife to to not uh, bring her down again, just in case, you know, I cross the paths of the wrong jurist, and next thing you know, uh, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, my son is definitely on the record <laughs> in a few different cases as unidentified male voice. <laughs> <laughs> you got to order. You got to order the transcript for that. Yeah. Oh. Well, we we got this. Uh, for any of you who have not been fortunate enough to be uh, guests on the Law Garage, uh, we got this whole questionnaire of things. We haven't touched this. We have not asked. There's not. We prepared for this. This is like going before a, a like a rogue judge who's like, I know you're here for this shoplifting, but I want to ask you about what you think about murder. Um, so the one thing. Uh, you, you didn't uh, ask us about was uh, actually what was the answer I wanted to give you anyway what was the what's the most embarrassing thing that happened to you in court the most embarrassing thing that happened to me recently yeah mine was recent too and it's upsetting <laughs> right <laughs> in front of justice oh no oh no, oh, no. <laughs> was I objected to a question in re-examination and in overruling my objection, he said, pick up a book on re-examination <laughs> and read it, Mr. Shara. Let's move on. Jeez. Oh, I, I was so stunned, but <laughs> I can't help but laugh about it because it was, I don't know. It was like, it was embarrassing, yes, but it was also like so perfect. <laughs> you know, when you, you know, just ripped to pieces. But when you practice, in, especially in Toronto Superior Court, where there's that, you know, we refer to it as the old guard of the the Superior Court. Those judges that, yeah, the people that were much more senior to me were really litigating in front of them, and we just kind of, I feel like I just kind of caught the tail end of there. Sure, you know. Uh, uh, position as on the uh, on the bench it's i feel like it's a little rite of passage to yeah. be hammered by by judges like that because so, i know that as a lawyer for sure got hammered by justice jessup or yeah. some of these old time judges that were very heavy uh you know court of appeal or trial judges and so on so i don't mind you it, have but to, you it's have a little to. bit embarrassing at the moment because you're yeah. just so caught off guard i my first superior court trial was in front of 
I don't know if you remember him from Brampton. But in the morning, he'd go up one side of me and down the other. And in the afternoon, he'd beat the hell out of the crown. Every day, day after day, the two of us were like shards. We were a skeleton, a, a ghost of our former self, just destroyed every day. Jen, do you have any questions you want to ask? Oh, well, I, you know, if I had known this, there was going to be this opportunity, I would have been taking notes with a line down the middle of my page. <laughs> so I could have contacted <laughs> Um, who do you, who did you uh, most enjoy seeing litigate or who did you wish you had a chance to see litigate? Somebody I wish I had a chance to see litigate is um, Justice Ed Then. Oh, interesting. And the reason is I did two significant homicides with him and I could just see in very much the same way as someone would describe Rob Nuttall that Justice then just had this ability to sway a jury. Obviously, I, I believe it was a crown for his career, but he's smart, um, came across folksy. Most of the time he was polite, uh, eloquent. And as a judge, his mind was thinking always ahead of you as counsel. So when he would listen and he had this ability to listen to what you're saying and then he would put your argument back to you in so much more eloquently than you put it to him and all i keep thinking is and now he's gonna pick it apart <laughs> <laughs> and is this what you're saying yes here's the problem right. <laughs> oh he, no the prop the answer would come in the ruling but <laughs> I, I kept thinking to myself if i was if he was a crown on the other side doing that how could you ever win? Like, you can never win. And so I always think to myself, I, I, would, I would have liked to have um, seen him litigate as a, as a crown attorney. I, one of the reasons that I'll never apply to the bench is I, like, I did that eight-month-long trial, but I did it in front of Maureen Forrestal. And just how smart she was and how far ahead of everybody else in the room she was, I'm like, I'm never going to be that smart. I can't be a judge. And then watch, and then, you know, doing, a, doing a, making closing submissions on a sex assault in front of Andre Shrek and how, like, he effortlessly still, despite having trained me to be a lawyer, just effortlessly, like, backhanded me across the head for something stupid I said and destroyed me. And, and to my great uh, delight, uh, I'm, I've just finished a double homicide in front of Justice Bodden, who I'd never appeared before, and I'm currently in the middle of a Garofoli in front of him. And his capacity to like absorb submissions on the fly and then do this exact same thing that you hear about G. Arthur Martin do, doing or, or Edward Then doing, coming back to you and saying, is this what you're trying to say? I'm like, yes, that's what I should have said if I'd been as smart as you. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a delight. Peter uh, Bodden and I um, did a, a homicide together, and uh, obviously we have very uh, different styles, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? and we have very different looks. And uh, I, I was very much in awe of his sense of humor as an advocate, but it never came up. He's was, very low key. He's so it. low key yeah. that you can't even tell if if he's messing with you or with the jury or with he led evidence about uh, uh, a shaving kit that was found that had all these sex toys in it 
and he did it in such a methodical way. And, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, is he messing with us? Where's he going with this? Like, how's this relevant to this case? And he put all this evidence in front of the jury. And then we go to the morning break and I'm like, Peter, what's the theory here? He's like, I just wanted those dildos in, into evidence. <laughs> Michelle told us a story about Marshall Sack and the ponytail and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, do you remember when you started out and you had this long, beautiful head of hair, went down to your shoulders, and uh, eventually you got rid of, uh, rid of that? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you get rid of that beautiful lo- uh, head of hair that you had, Marco? Went down to your shoulders, right? I, I had a nice head of hair back in the day, I, had, I like to think. I know some people might disagree. Um, that's the question you want to ask me? Harper? Sure. That's what I got. <laughs> Truthfully, um, long hair when it's goal starts to go gray is more noticeable. <laughs> so when you cut it short, you don't notice the grays in it. That was one of the main reasons why I cut it. Um, and also just as you get older, you just, you don't have the time to care about hair maintenance as a guy. Short hair, just keep it short, tight, easy to manage. Uh, as I look at, I come on Zoom and I look at some of these judges and I guess, the, you know, they can't cut their hair because it would look bad when the barbers were closed. Mm. And I didn't even recognize half these judges. <laughs> their hair is so long. These are not problems that I have. That's why I have to ask you, right? All right. Michelle? I'm going to ask you to answer the question, how can you represent someone you know is guilty? What, what do you say in response, Marco? Because I'm... I'm I'm looking for new material. The first, uh, look, the first question depends who asked me. Um, sometimes a lay person or no, actually, no, forget a lay person. Just a friend of yours. How do you, how do you do what you do? Marco? I, yeah, I get that all the time. Obviously we all, we all get all the time. I mean, I like to say, look, if they're paying, <laughs> that's how I do it. I, if they phrase the question, how do you sleep at night? I tell them because I'm tired. My job <laughs> is extremely difficult. But I think I like to just tell people, I mean, I, I had more of a Harpreetish speech when I was younger and more, you know, principled. I'm, I guess you get older and you get tired of hearing these uh, questions being asked of you. So when somebody asks me, you know, how do you defend uh, those people? I just basically say, listen, everybody deserves a defense. Um, you know, everybody gets charged or finds themselves in trouble at some point or another in their life. And for whatever reason, they're innocent until the state proves that they're guilty. And I try to maintain their innocence as long as they can. And if the state can't prove that they're guilty, what I know and I don't know doesn't matter. Because I can't testify against my client. I don't know what their innocence or their guilt is. So let the state lead the evidence to prove that they're guilty. And I, I may be naive. I believe in our justice system. So I believe that more often times... Um, you know, the system works the way it's supposed to work. People get acquitted because cases fall apart. Cases fall apart. You can't put a person in jail if the witness, you know, moved to Saudi Arabia. How can you justify putting him in jail in those circumstances? So that's what we have to tell people. And I think it's important as defense lawyers to, you know, not make too much of a joke of it and not be overly disgusted by those questions. But I, I'm starting to realize that the funniest thing that occurred to me uh, on this issue was I bumped into a high school teacher and she asked me this question. 
after she asked, what are you up to? What are you doing? And I said, she goes, oh, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. She says, how do you defend those people? I said, listen, everybody gets into trouble sometimes and you'd be surprised, you know, they need help and I'm there to help them. And she's like, oh, and you know, she's like, yeah, I guess it goes, I'm so glad I'll never have to call you. And I'm sitting at old city hall and I'm in the lawyer's lounge and my phone rings and I answer and it's mm -hmm. this woman and it's serious. It's very serious. It was resulted in a, let's just put it this way, resulted in an unfortunate death. And the first thing she said to me was, do you remember when I said I'd never have to call you? Which was only a couple months before. She's like, I have to call you now. And so I helped her out. And at the end, she's like, I feel so bad for asking you, how do you defend those people? Because she realizes that accidents happen. People need defenses. Things have to unfold. And so when you can provide your inquisitor with a question or an answer like that and an example like that, then you realize, hey, this woman needed a defense. Um, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it's a defense as a matter of law. And sometimes it's the difference between being accused of doing something on purpose and advancing a defensive accident. We have to provide those. Somebody has to be there for them. And those are the skills that we've acquired. And that's why we do it. And I think when you bring it into that perspective, it all of a sudden makes people realize, hey, any one of you people who are asking these questions may call us at some point or another. And you're going to want our help. So keep an open mind. That's what I try to explain to people. Thank you, Marco. I got one. It's a question that I thought you might ask us, but you didn't end up asking us. What's, uh, what's your biggest regret or what's, what's the, uh, a mistake you might have made uh, in any of your cases that you learned from and, uh, and uh, stuck with you for whatever reason? to put Marco on the spot here. It's funny. Yeah. I knew Marco Forte was going to ask me this question because, of course, it's the, the one mistake that I made that probably cost both our clients their liberty. Um, jury trial. I mean... I can't believe he's answering it. I'm going to answer it. Mr. Forte and I are doing a jury trial. It's a very, very difficult case. Five people break into a bank, B&E into a bank safe. Three people or four nationals pled guilty and were deported. His client and my client allegedly don't know each other and are found within a kilometer of the bank covered in s cement dust from the safe with all of the loot from the safe. The other three people were also with them. They but they pled guilty and were deported. So we're on trial in front of a jury. Our clients don't know each other. They're different backgrounds, different nationalities, completely different defenses. His client ran a duress defense. My client ran a, I just got dragged into this at the last minute. I didn't know what these guys were up to. I never went to the bank. So there was no reason why the jury should have been out for three days, in, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but they were and we're starting to feel good about ourselves despite the overwhelming case against them and I remember saying to my client 
I want you to review your cell phone records because if there's any inkling that your cell phone and the co-accused cell phones had any contact at any point in time, you know, the fact that you're testified that you don't know him, and it's not that I said I didn't believe my client per se, but I wanted him to know that these records are going to be indicative are of something that demonstrates that you had no contact with him and no knowledge of him. And so he looks through his phone records and the phone number doesn't appear. And we look through Mr. Forte's client's phone records and my client's cell phone number don't appear. And the cell phones were used to commit the offense alleged by the Crown and those records did not converge in any way. So we were safe. But in order to establish my client's version of events as being somewhat credible, is he testified that he was doing uh, construction work that day, hence his coverage in cement dust. He had a receipt from a hardware store purchase where he purchased a whole lot of um, supplies for a construction job on that very day. And we admitted that receipt into evidence to bolster his version of events because it helped with what he was up to and it helped with the timing and it seemed unrealistic that he would be buying hardware supplies and yet be involved in this insane B&E of a bank safe vault where, where they saw through the concrete of the vault from above and you know, this Italian jobs type B&E. We dubbed it the Albanian job. We called it the Albanian job, even though my client was in Albania, which was another reason why he had no knowledge of Mr. Forte's client. And on the third day, the jury comes back with a question. And the question is, can, what can we make of the fact that Mr. Shara's client uh, has provided this receipt where there's a business phone number that appears on this receipt, which also appears on Mr. Forte's client's phone records. The case was over at that moment. And that's when I was uh, going to my <laughs> secret stash of, well, it's all hearsay here, Honor. It's, none of this is admissible because the Crown didn't cross-examine my client on it when he had the opportunity. I didn't know what to say. And it was just that piece of evidence that, that I... It put into evidence, obviously, with my clients as my client in, in order to bolster my client's defense. My client tells me, "Look, I did this. I bought this stuff, and I never thought that that business phone number would appear on one of the phone records because those phone records were allegedly the phones used to conspire to commit the offense." And all those phones were prepaid phones that had no connection to anything other than on the day in question. Right. And uh, so the jury finds this needle in a haystack that none of the lawyers in the room found. And they come back with this question. We don't have an answer for it. And the judge effectively charges them by saying, you can, it's a piece of evidence and you can use it as you see fit. And about 10 minutes later, we got our verdicts. <laughs> so I know it wasn't necessarily my fault uh, per se because you know my client and his instructions that we went that route. 
And it was also something very difficult because it was not in his phone records. It was in the co-accused cool phone records. But nonetheless, it was something that I never uh, sh have shaken as a mistake that I feel that I've made that um, may, may or may not have had an impact on the outcome of the trial. Right. I won't let him forget it, Lana. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in fairness to, to Marco, one thing I do want to say, he did maybe the best job I've ever seen any lawyer do at the preliminary inquiry of this same case, where despite the fact that our clients were covered in concrete dust and that the two duffel bags full of cash and jewels from the various safety deposit boxes were found within earshot of them, he managed to convince a judge of the Ontario Court of Justice in Milton, after playing the crown perfectly in this case, to discharge our clients. <laughs> They, they were discharged uh, basically on the strength of Marco's strategy and submissions. And we couldn't believe it. We, I remember telling my client, let's get out of here as fast as we can before anyone changes their mind. Sure enough, uh, the, the crowd's office brought a certiorari. <laughs> and, but, but I looked at Marco and I, and I, had, I was looking at him like I was, I was like starstruck almost. And I said, you know, I think you did it. I think you convinced the judge to discharge these guys on an incredibly strong crown case, and he did. Um, anyway, so, so to his credit, but I still won't let him forget that receipt ever. I, I, I never forget. In front of the clients, we were in front of the clients in the, in the parking lot of the courthouse, and Marco says, I think you did it. I really think you convinced the judge. And I, I said to the clients, don't get your hopes up, guys. Don't get your hopes up. That's right. <laughs> it was the day before Canada Day. And then we came back a week later and they got discharged. And he's like, get, get out of here. <laughs> Lana, do you have a question before we go? Well, I think you've like taken us down memory lane and gotten a little bit nostalgic. So I want to ask you, what, what do you value from those early days at Hicks Adams and the early days of the Chambers. What have you taken from that into your practice today? And what do you miss? Well, obviously I miss, I mean, I miss my friends. I miss having that. I'm going to say the same thing that you said before is that that time in our life was the time where we really enjoyed ourselves. And we were at that time where everybody was kind of involved in each other's cases and knew what was going on. And we wanted to hear what happened. I really, really like that. I mean, we still have that I, with me specifically with both of you. Um, I feel that I'm still quite involved in each other's cases and we talk to each other about our, our files. But I think in those days, what I miss, or what, I, what I valued and what's influenced me the most was that, you know, the firm was good because we got our experience, but we all felt, I feel, the people who left and, and went to King Law Chambers at that time it was very early on in our career. But I think we all felt that we just wanted to expand. It wasn't even that there was anything wrong with the firm and the firm was a great learning environment. But I just think we wanted to be on our own and do this for ourselves. And it was this idea that we could do it together but still be independent. And I remember that... It was you, Lana, who told me that Sean had this space. And I remember specifically 
we went to meet him on a Sunday. And when we went to meet him, he said, and Marco Forte has already uh, committed to this office and I have these two available. And I was just thinking to myself, this is, this is our time. This is our opportunity. And when I think back those, you know, when we first left, it was very nerve wracking and we were all trying to make a business out of it and try to make some money. And we were worried about paying our bills and all of that was happening slowly but steadily which was nice but right away marco forte brought me to the court of appeal within that first few months i remember i never been to the court of appeal as you know on my own and marco forte is like i'm going to the court of appeal and sean had work and people in our office were giving us work and it was just this hey i got a bail hearing hey i got a you want to take a client i got a call for a co-accused and all of a sudden, all of these things started to come together and we felt like we're all in this. And when we were at that time in our career, Suits had just come out, the show Suits. And everybody was always making fun of Suits and how Suits isn't real law. But then they came to shoot in our office, <laughs> right? You remember? <laughs> they, all of a sudden, you know, Mike Ross and Harvey... Harvey are in our office building shooting and we're like, no, you know what? Suits is a good show. What are we talking about? This is a great show. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, because we felt this, hey, you know what? We're here. And even though we didn't go out as much as we used to when we were younger, we would still, we were on King Street. We could go to a bar. We could go to a restaurant. We could go for a lunch. And we were there and it was just a great place to be. And, you know, there was some nights when I was there late and I remember Mark Forte calls me and he's like, are you in the office? Because I locked, I'm locked out. And, you know, let him in. We go upstairs. That was the night where we, he's like, let's hang these degrees on my wall. And next thing you know, it's 12 o'clock at night and we're banging nails. I said, tomorrow morning, all these degrees are going to be crooked. We don't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> but we had that fun time. And it was just a time in our life where, you know, I look back and I, I say to myself, you know, we're really lucky to have had that opportunity to learn from one another, to build our practices, to make our decisions. And I feel that for us, it came to an end naturally simply because Sean, you know, had to move his chambers. And with that came a change and we all had to make choices and we had to make decisions. And, you know, we had to all make the decisions that uh, were beneficial to us. And so we all kind of went our separate ways from that point on but we rode it out as long as we could and it was a great time so i really feel that that time period was something that i would encourage young lawyers to actually get involved in in terms of getting into a chambers getting into that environment getting out of your basements or your your bedrooms or wherever you're conducting law right now if you have an opportunity get into a chambers because you're going to learn and you're it's not forever just take advantage of it for that time in your life and as you grow out of it you know you can move forward yeah well what's the funniest thing you've ever encountered in court well i mean other than that no yeah other than that trial that, that trial, you and I um, no I, i'll tell you an embarrassing story because oh even better no, nobody answers the the embarrassing story question um i thought i did with my profusive sweating actually you're right, <laughs> you're right. that story that story was actually that story was actually pretty funny. um 
my most, I was doing, I was picking a jury. And for some reason, I have this anxiety about confusing content with challenge. Me but too. I have to write it at the top of my page, even right. after this long. <laughs> I have, I have an anxiety about that. that I'm going to confuse it. So we come back from lunch and I'm sitting there thinking, well, it's the crown's turn to go first. And the nectar juror comes out and he is um, noticeably visually impaired. Cane, et cetera. And so I'm sitting there thinking, my case is pretty bad. I'd be interested to see like if this is a, type of juror that the crown is going to challenge or, or accept because if he's if he accepts this juror I might accept them too right and the crown so the I, I asked the challenge for cause it was publicity challenge for cause he answers it any reasons why you can't sit he says no so I'm sitting there and all this is going through your head and as you know we only have a few seconds to really understand it and like feel this out and the registrar stands up and goes defense and I was so caught off guard that it was my turn I didn't expect it to be my turn and then I forgot the two words challenge your <laughs> content and I didn't know what to do and we already had seven jurors picked and I'm thinking and now I'm starting to think these jurors are thinking something that I'm thinking something negative of this prospective juror because of his impairment so all of these things are going through my mind that I didn't know what to do. So I just, I just asked, I say to the court, may I have the court's indulgence, please? And I walk up quietly behind the crown and I say to the crown, call him by his first name and I say, whisper. I say, what do I say if I want to get rid of this guy? And he goes, challenge? And I just he said, uh, Your Honor, I'm going to have to agree with the crown here on this challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to say and do. And then he, at the break, he's like, oh, you set me up. I was like, oh, I swear to God, I didn't set you up. I just, I had a panic attack. I didn't know what to do in that moment. I was so frozen. I was so embarrassed. And it was just like, oh to God. me, that was the most embarrassing. But I mean, it's, it's, it's in retrospect, it doesn't sound embarrassing, but it felt it in the moment. Like, it just, I didn't know how to handle it. And I put myself in this position of this poor man who's standing there thinking, what the heck is going on here? It's all yeah. quiet and then what to do. So yeah, that's that was genius. That That's was, genius. It played out. It played out, but it wasn't on purpose. Well, I'm interested in what attracted you to criminal defense. Um, so I journey to criminal defense. It's interesting because I, I didn't have much of a criminal defense uh, mindset when I went into law school, but I did like uh, charter a lot. Mm -hmm. The charter was my big thing in undergrad too. I political science major. I liked rights. When I got into law school, a son of a very prominent criminal defense lawyer in Toronto became friends with me. We, we became friends, and he, he just said to me, I've known a lot of criminal defense lawyers. You're, you're a criminal defense lawyer, naturally. <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't know any lawyers, never mind criminal defense lawyers. He's like, you should really consider getting into criminal defense. I could just see it's in your personality. It's the type of person that you are and i think you'll do do well in it so i kept that in the back of my mind but uh, i have to give him credit because he actually um through having friends 
who were lawyers in Ottawa at the time. He was able to find a lawyer who was looking for students to assist with her practice at the time. And he offered it to me. He said, look, I, I worked for her last summer. She'd like a student's a student or two to work uh, throughout the school year. Maybe you can get credit for it. So I ended up working with this criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa who got me working on a murder appeal. So uh, for credit, I worked on a murder appeal. And then when the summer came, I actually went to the court of appeal with her to litigate this appeal. And it was a successful appeal. And here I thought, you know, murder appeals are routinely overturned. Uh, you know, murder <laughs> convictions are routinely <laughs> overturned. <laughs> That's what I thought um, at the time. But it just, it, it was like a, an area of law that I found obviously interesting. The subject matter was interesting. It impacted constitutional litigation every day. If you like constitutional litigation, I mean, criminal law, we have the largest section of the charter is criminal based. So it just sucked me in. And then I worked for her again the year after and I started taking all criminal classes. And of course, you do well in the courses that you like. So you take courses that you like and you find interesting. And, you know, after that, I applied to criminal firms and I got hired at Hicks Block Adams at the time. And I articled there and the rest is uh, history, as they say. Here's a question for you. Sure, Ryan. Do you have an exit strategy? Would you ever consider, for example, becoming a judge? You took over for someone who became a judge. I feel like if you talk to most criminal defense lawyers because of the things we've talked about, the stress and the difficulty of it, that there's always sort of an eye somewhere on the exit door. Um, so would you ever, for example, apply for a judge or do, do you have a, another idea or is this it? Well, I don't, that's an interesting question because A, it's almost like become a taboo topic. You're not mm. supposed to be asking people these sorts of questions, Ryan. And it's particularly because I find that everybody I know has got an application in somewhere or, or somewhere else, right? So it's very <laughs> awkward. I do not have any uh, judicial applications in. Uh, so I feel comfortable, very comfortable speaking about this. Um, because, like you ha have indicated, Ryan, that um, this is the only thing that you could do. This is the only real job I've ever had. I mean, I worked in clothing for many years through school but I, in terms of a profession being a defense lawyer is the only real job i've ever had and it's the type of job that as stressful as, as it is we come to work every day because of how much we enjoy it and we enjoy that certain level of stress so in terms of an exit strategy i don't see myself making any decisions or any transitions between let's say now and the next 15 years which would bring me into my you know mid 50s at that point we don't know what life brings us and i think a lot of people make decisions as to leave criminal defense because of what else is happening in their lives mm -hmm. um i don't think it has to do necessarily with the job itself as much as to do with the rest of your life and is it time to retire is it time to switch over is it time to go to the crown's office is it time to apply to the bench um maybe is it time to teach or focus more on academics different people do things at different times in their lives at this point in my life i feel that when you're in your 10 to 20 year range of practice and you are in your 40s late 30s, early 40s, 
you're at your your stride. You're at your peak in terms of your ability to perform. That's where I see it. I feel like once you know you have a certain level of experience and your certain level of energy, that energy, thank God for me, hasn't waned at this point in my career. I feel like I can keep pushing and I feel that I have enough experience right now to get the best results that I could possibly get for my clients now in my mm -hmm. career. And because you feel that way, it seems that you're there to work, your files come in, um, younger lawyers are seeking assistance, senior lawyers are passing down files to me. So I'm in this point where I just want to take what I have and get the best results I possibly can for all, as many clients as I can until I run out of gas. And then when I'm starting to run out of gas, I might have a different answer for you, Ryan. But right now, I don't feel that way. I feel like I'm, I'm I, I caught a stride and I'm just running. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of, of, of shame around that question because you're supposed to, you know, if you're, if you're so committed and passionate and dedicated, if this is all you can do, then why the heck are you thinking about leaving? <laughs> and so there's like a lot of shame, there's a lot of shame. And, and also clients, like they don't want to, they don't want a lawyer who is like half one foot in the door, one foot out kind of thing. So there's a lot, but there's a lot of shame, but, but I think like some, a, a, a recent, um, I had a conversation recently with a, a young criminal defense lawyer who's about my vintage. And he was saying, you know, I don't know if I can do this at, at age 55. This is a young man's game. Um, and it just, the, the demands on you are so strong that I have no judgment against people who make no judgment against people who, who say, you know what, I can't, I can't do this. It's too difficult. Like I could see myself at 55, for instance, you know, if I was in a situation where I could just take on a few larger files, have a junior who's working on something and you know, take, you, you don't have a high volume practice. You can kind of focus your, on, and like issues that you're doing and cases that you're doing. People could do this for, I mean, we have the benefit of seeing defense lawyers in well into their sixties and seventies because they just enjoy the profession. Mm -hmm. um, but what people tend to forget is, you know, we don't have a pension. You have to be financially stable to, to get to that point. You have to make all these business decisions young. And so making all those decisions is what allows you to then make those decisions at that point in time. Because if you're in the rat race in your 50s, I, it seems like I, I don't want to have a high volume practice. I mean, I don't carry a high volume practice to begin with. I'm a little busier now than I like to be, but generally I, I don't have a lot of clients. I like to just do cases that I enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwal. The Law Garage is a J-Mike podcast production.